The Great Improbability. This is part nine of the audio drama. It has crossed my mind There's so little time That we live in the sweet forever The Great Improbability An autobiographical mystery by the people of Earth David Sayer, author Harvey Cap Ellis, the bank's senior partner on the deal, presides at the Orange Juice and Champagne Toast, convened in our largest conference room. It's floor-to-ceiling windows overlooking the harbor and the lesser structures of lower New York. Cap has a booming voice and a grand manner of inserting pauses into his sentences to allow their import to sink in to those slower minds who might have missed it. This is a toast to an indispensable partner. He smiles ingratiatingly at Joshua Frankel. A most valued client. The smile swinging over to the AMED contingent. And a new friend of the firm. Now the smile and the voice take on a conspiratorial and congratulatory tone and sweep all around the room. At a moment of triumph and a new beginning for the Empire State. Cap raises his glass. To Josh Frankel the most creative investment banker in New York, Sparky Monroe, the most persistent businessman and the smartest engineer I've ever met, and a longer pause than usual to our new friend making his first but not his last visit to the bank, Timothy Maloney. I'm in a corner and had not seen this unlikely visitor. Maloney has been standing to one side, smiling his disarming smile. That smile which is among the most recognized in America, associated with Hollywood by the female staff and with the beaver species by the males, and now raises his right hand in a V for victory salute to the partners, all of whom applaud. His turn has apparently come, and he speaks briefly and modestly. I have long felt that more joins us in common enterprise than separates us in political means. I appreciate the opportunity so effectively facilitated by this great firm to work with Mr. Monroe and Mr. Frankel in bringing lower cost energy and reduced pollution to our citizens. Maloney then excuses himself to attend a neighborhood meeting. His burly attendants join him in the elevator lobby, and he's gone. The party goes on for its appointed hour, reenacting how the opposing law firm had been outmaneuvered, and then the firm returns to its routine. I had heard and read enough to piece together the deal. A new power plant would be built in a poor section of the Bronx, where a neighborhood group with Maloney's initial support had opposed it. The neighborhood believed that toxins in the new plant's exhaust and cooling water would increase asthma and cancer among their children. They had anecdotal evidence of similar effects from other plants, but the AMED engineers had produced countervailing evidence of newer control technologies and had won preliminary approvals from federal and state licensing authorities. The local people were not convinced, and Maloney sensed a cause. The alternative site, farther out on Long Island, 
had been preferred for its remoteness from population centers and easier fuel delivery. But it had been fiercely opposed by affluent residents there and by their advocates, including the bank. Cap had made a deal. Maloney would drop his vocal opposition and quietly support the Bronx site if the developer would build a new park and renovate a school there. The borough would fund a monitoring program to track emissions from the plant and correlate them with the incidence of childhood asthma and leukemia. Ahmed would fund construction of a combined heat and power plant, using the waste heat from electrical generation to feed steam into its district heating network, thus increasing efficiency and reducing fuel burning. A prominent New York engineering firm was hastily engaged to study the economic and social costs of this arrangement, and happily, predictably some believed, concluded that its cost-benefit ratio was substantially superior to that of the competing site. All this was business as usual. The unusual part was the inclusion of Rodney Appleby at the party. I had met Rodney only once, but I knew that this obscure and secretive partner of the firm usually dealt with family and personal matters, likely to involve litigation or sensitive settlements not with corporate or municipal law. In fact, I had once seen him slipping out of my father's bridge room, that most secretive, forbidding, exclusive inner sanctum, at a morning hour when no bridge was played by men. Appleby dressed, walked, and spoke quietly. He had a small, soft face behind large glasses and talked so softly that his listeners had to lean forward and be more than usually attentive, distracting them from their arguments. This was all technique. In fact, Appleby was the most confrontative member of a club famous for confrontations, a studious inquisitor who in a legal fight was a junkyard dog. This inquisitor had to pass me to leave the room, so I fell in stride with him down the hall. This was somewhat unnatural for me, because Appleby took short steps and focused on the floor as he walked, rarely looking up, never greeting anyone he passed but I slowed my pace and shuffled along at his side so he couldn't ignore me. I addressed the empty air in front of us. So Rod, you don't usually attend these parties. Appleby was obviously startled. He knew I was not on the list of invitees and stopped abruptly. Scowling above his glasses at my naive face, he hissed, Tom, you know I never talk about my work. And what brought you to the party? I said, touché. We exchanged a glance that meant, let's forget we saw each other, and turned in opposite directions. But I knew well what Appleby's inclusion meant. There must be a side agreement that involves some kind of Maloney indiscretion, possibly, judging by his reputation, with a woman and there would have to be something unusual about the woman to justify Rodney Appleby's engagement. Perhaps her youth, or her connections, or her prominence. Maloney must need cover and advocacy in circles that his family did not normally influence. I had no personal reason to investigate further, and forgot about the matter, until it became very personal several years later. The seniors graduating from MIT 
will like the ex-con's attack on the establishment. They will sit up, some will stroke their chins and turn toward the speaker. So, he says, given the prevailing of truth and the maintaining of freedom, what special capacities would you propose as necessary objects of our commitment? In other words, what abilities, what enabling capabilities need our commitment to pursue truth in freedom to do our work? How about the ability to exchange information, to communicate? Sure, some discoveries seem to spring spontaneously from individuals working alone, but the application of their work and the accumulation of information leading up to it required communication with others. And the working of our brains themselves requires exchanging information continuously at the cellular level. If communication were no longer possible, learning would cease as would living. The information theory graduates will murmur a right on. Though the journey seems long, it doesn't take long to realize the song always has an ending here in the sweet forever. Appearing in Part 9 of The Great Improbability were Tane Collins, Dennis Johnson, Michael Venn, DJ Ingalls, and Gene McDaniels. Produced by Dennis Collins Johnson.